Well, we are journeying with Jesus to the cross. Last week we went to the upper room and we, we saw Jesus preparing his disciples, preparing them for what he was going to do, trying to let him, them know that he was going to die on the cross, trying to prepare them for what they were going to do, abandon and deny and betray him, trying to prepare them for what it's going to mean to live and follow Jesus after all this, the coming of the Holy Spirit and, and the idea of, of living a life of, of service. Today we go to Gethsemane with Jesus. Gethsemane just means oil press. Um, we call it the Garden of Gethsemane, though the Bible doesn't actually say the Garden of Gethsemane. The synoptics say a place called Gethsemane. John says they enter a garden, and we sort of put those together. Um, we're not exactly sure where this is in particular, but we know it was at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, which is directly to the east of the Temple Mount uh, and of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus had been staying on Bethany, which is just over on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And so uh, he has been through there and, and walked through there and, and come back and forth. He, he walked through there for Palm Sunday and uh, uh, seemed to like this place. Okay, Jesus, uh, when Judas wants to find Jesus, he knows where he's going to be. Because um, apparently Jesus liked to stop here and pray. Uh, maybe on his way into and out of the city, he would stop here and pray. Um, there's a chapel there today. There's a little garden. There's also a cave uh, uh, back behind one of the monasteries there that uh, looks like it could have been a an olive press at one point. Um, but so we're not exactly sure where, but we know it's right at the bottom of this uh, the the Mount of Olives. Um, if you ever get the chance to go there or you see pictures, it's just a beautiful place. And the olive trees last a long time. And so the, the olive trees that are there on the Mount of Olives and in the Garden of Gethsemane today um, are, are probably only two or three generations from the ones that Jesus actually stood under. Now, I believe this location is important for this story because of where it is, but also the, the imagery, the metaphor of the olive press. So, so you need to understand a little bit about how the olive press works. Um, now, what you would do is you would you would use sticks a lot of times to sort of knock down the olives into baskets or into a blanket, and you'd sort of pile those up. And then you would take them normally down the hill to press them. You wouldn't want to take them all up the hill. That'd be a lot of work. You let gravity help you out. So down at the bottom of the of the hill or wherever you were, that's where you would do the pressing. Now, what you would do is you'd have, the first part would be a grindstone, okay? And a grindstone is a big round stone with with normally a square hole cut in it and a log where a pole would go in there and it would be on a, on a flat kind of table and then either a person could push it or a donkey would push it and, and just crush, just crush the, and break up the olives. And that was the best olive oil, okay? The best of the pressing was the first press. And that's the extra virgin olive oil. It's the best olive oil. Okay, then you would take it to the second press, and you would press it multiple times there. All of that now crushed olives would, would go into baskets, and those baskets would be put on a, on a pole where there would be leverage, and you would add more and more weight to press down on the baskets to squeeze as much of the oils out as you could. So normally three times. Again, the earlier the better the oil, the later would be 
more common use burning oil for your for your lamps, for example. Okay, so so keep this this imagery of the olive press in mind as I read the scripture from uh, Matthew twenty six. Start in verse thirty six. I'm going to read part of the scripture now, and then we'll pick it back up here later. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my heart is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus takes them to the to the olive press and then goes a little further. One of the Gospels say a stone throw away with his closest friends, Peter, James, and John. And Matthew says he began to be sorrowful and troubled, sorrowful unto death. Mark describes, describes him as distressed and agitated. And he falls on his face and begins to pray. He prays that this cup could pass from him, if at all possible. Now, the question is, what is the cup? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup represented God's righteous anger poured out on sinners. This comes Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Lamentations 4, Ezekiel 23. So it's the wrath of God. More recently, Jesus had held up a cup earlier that evening that represented the blood of the Passover lamb and said it, it was his blood shed for them. I think probably Jesus has both of those in mind as he says this cup. That he's about to take on the, the wrath that we all deserve on the cross. And he prays that if, if there's any other way that God the Father would take the cup, but Jesus, in, in, in his full humanity, he's stressed, he's anxious, he feels the weight, he feels... The, the pain that he knows, the pain he's going to go through. And you know, what's his prayer? Not my will, but yours be done. He comes back to this position of submission. There's a beautiful chapel at the base of the Mount of Olives called the Church of All Nations or the Basilica of Agony. Uh, if you go in this chapel, you can see on the ceiling all these stars painted in the ceiling. So no matter when you go there, it's always at night with Jesus in the garden in that chapel. And there's a stone up front by the altar called the Stone of Agony, the Rock of Agony. And uh, this stone is, is shown in a picture above, too. This stone is tra a traditional place where Jesus may have actually sat or laid down to pray. 
Um, this is a very ancient stone and marked pretty early on as a uh, potential place. And the flat top is still part of the chapel, so you can go and kneel, put your hands on the rock, and imagine with Jesus in the night in this darker chapel with the stars above you being there. Imagine the weight that Jesus feels, the pressure of knowing the torture that he's about to experience. Luke says that an angel came and strengthened him there. And Luke also says in Luke twenty-two forty-four, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, we cannot be sure how literal Luke is being here. I mean, does that mean like he's just sweating really, he's just sweating so profusely, these really big drops that it's kind of like blood? Or there's actually a condition called hematidrosis, where when someone gets anxious, the blood vessels burst in the skin and mix with the sweat, so you actually do sweat drops of blood. The point is that he, he feels this agony. This is why Gethsemane is so important for, for understanding the evening, because he's feeling pressed, like the, oil, like the olive oil press. Okay, he's feeling crushed. He's feeling the weight, the weight of the world, the weight of our sins, the weight of the agony that, that he's about to go through, the pain. And so this wine press, I think, is, is a, a perfect metaphor for how he feels in that moment, that he's going to be broken, that his blood is going to spill. And here in Gethsemane, he, he's preparing himself for that weight. And he's doing all that alone. Because his disciples are sleeping. His closest friends on earth, who earlier that night said they would never abandon him or forsake him and they'd be with him till the end, can't stay awake. Maybe it's the busy night. Maybe it's all the food of the Passover meal. Um, uh, full bellies and, and, and all of that. But they fall asleep in the evening and into the early morning under the olive trees. Three times Jesus comes to wake them up. And he warns them not to get into temptation. He urges them to pray because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yes, he feels alone, but he also cares for them in this moment. They are about to have some really hard days, too. They're not going to go through what he's going to go through, but, but they are going to feel really threatened. And, and they're going to go through a lot of pain themselves. But they keep falling asleep. Finally, Jesus says, okay, rise, get up. See, my betrayer is at hand. So let's pick up the story again in Matthew 22, now in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd of swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with him, with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do not think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send more than twelve legions of angels. And how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Have you come against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jesus knew the crowd was coming. Perhaps he hears them in the quiet of the night. His disciples miss it because they're sleeping. It's described as a great crowd, including priests and people from the priests and others. They're armed with swords and clubs. Jesus awakens his disciples to meet him. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, is leading them. And he has told the crowd that the one he kisses is the man to arrest. To betray someone is one thing, but to do it with a kiss is quite another. In fact, we still use the phrase a Judas kiss for an intimate betrayal. I I think that shows the heart of Judas. Judas is not a nice guy. He's betraying with a kiss. And yet Jesus said to him, friend... Do what you came to do. Jesus calls him friend and orders him to go ahead and betray him. Peter, always a brash one, takes out a sword and lops off the ear of a man named Malchus. But Jesus heals the man's ear and says that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. This is at once a rebuke of Peter and the other disciples for wanting to defend. But but I think also a rebuke against the chief priests and all those people that came with swords to arrest him and to capture him. Besides, Jesus says, I can have legions of angels come down and deliver me at any time. Then Jesus turns the crowd and points out that they're coming at him in the middle of the night like with swords like a robber. He's been in the temple. He's been accessible all week. But now they choose. See, see they're afraid. Not afraid of Jesus and his disciples, but more afraid of the crowd and the popularity of Jesus. Jesus gives himself to them, and all the disciples flee. In fact, there's this great moment in the Gospel of Mark that shows this off in a very unusual way. Mark 14, 51, and 52 has never gotten its proper due, never seen a painting of this, or put it on a coffee mug, or crossed it in a pillow. Here's what it says. And a young man followed him with, with nothing but a linen cloth around his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I love that verse. So it's almost like a cartoon when they run fast, but they run so fast they leave their clothes behind. I mean, it's this great way of saying the disciples get out of there. They get out of Dodge, and they get out of Dodge quickly. Jesus is taken from Gethsemane back into the city where he is tried by the Jewish authorities. They want to have him executed. So by the morning, he is tried by the Roman authorities, and by about 9 a.m., he's on the cross. And all this we got to pay attention to how the gospel writers write this. Because the, the big point they're trying to make is that Jesus knew this was coming. He's feeling the pressure. He's feeling the weight in Gethsemane. He prays to deal with that pressure. But, but he is still in control. He is still intentional. Consider, for example, from the story, that Jesus tells Judas to do what he has to do in the upper room, and then he tells Judas to do what he came to do in Gethsemane. Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him, and he still goes to the place where he knows Judas can find him. All he's got to do is go somewhere else to pray, and Judas couldn't find him. Jesus, Jesus rises to meet the crowd instead of running off, and he wakes his disciples to wait to, to, uh, to meet them when they're coming. Jesus will not let his disciples fight, even fight to let him get away. He even, uh, he even tells them that he's the one that they came for. He doesn't try to fake it. Maybe Peter could die on his sword and Jesus can get away. No, Jesus Jesus makes that decision. And Jesus doesn't call all these angels to defend him. 
I mean, if an angel can attend him in his agony, then an angel could defend him at his arrest. The gospel writers are being quite clear. Jesus is, is not wrapped up in a conspiracy. Jesus is in control. And remember your geography. Okay, He's at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. All he's got to do is walk to the top of the Mount of Olives. And on the other side, he's in the Judean wilderness. Okay, He is a 20-minute, 30-minute walk away from total freedom. And he's lived in the wilderness before. Okay, He can disappear. They would never find him. He could be on the other side of the Mount of Olives in a half hour. He could be down to the Dead Sea by the morning. Uh, he could be up to Galilee or cut back across through Samaria. He, Jesus can absolutely get away. And he's feeling that weight, I think, as he kneels and prays. Okay, He knows, all I got to do is walk out of here. All I got to do is leave. But he chooses to stay. He chooses to stay. He chooses the cross. He intentionally and knowingly walks towards the cross. He submits to the plan. Even in his anxiety, he finds the strength in prayer to do the hardest thing possible. And why? For you and for me. So wherever you feel pressed, whatever is crushing you, wherever you feel anxious and despairing, where you have sin beyond your ability to carry it, remember that Jesus entered all of that for you. So pray. Pray. Ask God to take it away and, and then in the end submit to his will and ask for the strength to carry on and go where God tells you. Remember when you feel pressed that Jesus felt pressed for you.